0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to a Cardio Nerds Case Report. This is Amit Goyal, back with Dan Ambinder. And we are so thrilled for this case, the very first case, from colleague at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. We are joined by Dr. Emily Lee and Dr. Charlie Lin to teach us about cardiology. So guys, welcome to the show. And would you please introduce
2: yourself? Hi, my name is Emily Lee. I am currently a PGY2 internal medicine resident at Keck School of Medicine. I am interested in going into cardiology in the future.
0: Hi, thanks for having us. I'm Charlie Lynn. I'm one of the general cardiology fellows here, and
3: I'm hoping to have a future in electrophysiology. Well, Charlie and Emily, welcome, welcome, welcome. This is so exciting. And for Amit and I to both be on the CNCR recording, it's even an extra bonus, and we love the West Coast. So speaking of, it's probably sunnier than where we are sitting here, but please take us to your favorite spot in LA so we can have a great conversation about cardiology.
2: Sure. So today in the sunny California, I would like to take you on a waterfall hike to Pasadena. After all the recent rain, we actually got here. And then after that, we will be taking a stroll through the neighborhood for a nice brunch.
1: Friends, that sounds absolutely lovely. Count us in and let's get started.
2: All right. Today, we will be taking you to our emergency department at LA County Hospital. So our case is a 33-year-old male. He's presenting to the emergency department with progressive lower extremity edema for the last two months and disney on exertion for the past month, and that was worse over the past week. And just some additional information. So regarding his lower extremity edema, he says that it is bilateral and has been getting worse, making it difficult for him to walk and to work. Previously, he had no limitations in his physical ability, but over the past month, he feels short of breath with walking three to four blocks and over the past week after walking one to two blocks. His mom, who was also present, notes that he wakes up throughout the night gasping for air. He does snore when he sleeps, but has never had a sleep study done in the past. He also reports having intermittent palpitations and chest pain during the day. Of note, he was diagnosed with left lower extremity DVT approximately a year ago, and it was thought to be due to long periods of immobilization with weekly bus rides from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. He was prescribed Apixaban for six months, though he reports he stopped taking it after six weeks since he attributed the medication to significant nausea. Regarding his other review of system, he denied any fevers, chills, headache, vision changes, and abdominal pain. Jumping into his past medical history, he has a history of hypertension and provoked left lower extremity DBT, as we mentioned. For his medications, he was previously on apixaban and lisinopril, but again, he has stopped both of those medications at this time. And regarding his social history, he drinks two to three beers on the weekends. He reports infrequent tobacco use, and he has extensive methamphetamine use, approximately half a gram per day to day and a half. For his family history, both his maternal and paternal grandparents have hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and CKD. And the patient has no known drug allergies. Hey,
1: Emily, can I ask while we're going through this history, for those of us who don't know, where does a half a gram of methamphetamine per day stand on the scale of very little, medium, a lot? I really have no concept of this amount.
2: Yeah, I actually had to look this up because the patient didn't tell me, but usually 0.2 to 0.3 grams for every 12 hours is what's typical. So he's been using it for about two years already. So I think he increased the dose a little bit for himself to get the same high.
1: Yeah. So it seems like a pretty robust use of methamphetamine. And by the way, terrific history that really gives us a sense of alarm in this otherwise fairly healthy and young gentleman, right? I mean, He's had quite rapidly progressive dysion exertion over a handful of weeks which as a young person without too many risk factors, you would think the cardiopulmonary reserve is fairly high, right? For someone to start having functional limitation, something very serious is going on. And You would think, okay, is this cardiac, pulmonary, hematological? The fact that he's had a prior DBT might help us start honing things in. I know that we consider long bus rides as a possible risk factor, but we'll have to dig into this a bit
2: more. But thanks for a terrific history. What were you guys thinking about at this point? So the patient's presentation with dyspnea is a very common symptom that we see in the outpatient setting and in hospital emergency rooms because it is caused by so many different underlying conditions, some of which arise acutely and can be life-threatening like a PE or an MI. A thorough history and targeted diagnostic studies are very important. Overlapping clinical presentations and patients' other comorbid diseases can make the diagnostic evaluation of dyspnea very difficult. And sometimes the presence of dyspnea alone is already a predictor of increased mortality. So when we think of dyspnea, way to more precisely characterize the patient's symptoms are very helpful when we're trying to come up with a targeted differential diagnoses. So some criteria that we should consider include, is there a temporal component? So is it acute, meaning it's less than four weeks? Is it chronic? Is it present for more than four weeks? Or is it acute on chronic issue? Alternatively, does it happen only intermittently or is it more permanent? The next criteria to consider is, is there a situational component? Does it happen at rest or when the patient is exerting themselves? Does it accompany any emotional stress? Does it depend on the patient's body position? So if they're sitting up, lying down, or does it depend on where they're located? Does it only happen at work, at home, when they're near pets? And lastly, to consider what other systems are associated with it. So do we think it's a problem primarily related to the heart, or do we think it's primarily related to the lungs, or is it a mix of a lung and a heart issue? And there's other causes that we need to consider for dyspnea, including anemia, thyroid diseases, or a patients' poor physical condition as well as any mental health causes. So just some initial differentials for our patient's dyspnea, palpitations, lower extremity edema, as well as his history of untreated DBT. We already mentioned a few, but just to add on, so the patient could have a new diagnosis of decompensated heart failure. He could have a cardiac arrhythmia. He could have a pulmonary embolism. He could have pulmonary arterial hypertension. He could have chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, as well as anemia. And lower on the differentials, but we should always have in the back of our minds. Includes acute coronary syndrome, secondary to vasospasms, pericarditis, pericardial tamponade. You could have a respiratory infection like pneumonia, or you can have underlying asthma or COPD that have yet to be diagnosed.
0: Emily, a uh, wonderful differential. And at this stage, this individual is presenting as a pure medicine-type admission de novo with these rapidly progressive symptoms, which are certainly concerning. And in cardiology, we outline several of the concerns that you have already touched upon. namely Have we thought about the electrical conduction of the heart, the coronary arteries, the function of the valves and myocardium itself, as well as the pericardium? But outside of this, you've also highlighted some of the very common causes for dyspnea, including the pulmonary system as well as the hematologic system. I think all these are worth looking into for a young individual who otherwise presents with some vague history of substance misuse and otherwise not much prior workup. So as he's behaving more of a cardiopulmonary type patient, what is your thought process in terms of sequence of workup? What do you do next? What do you reach for first?
2: Sure. Next, I would go to the vitals and the exam and then hopefully get a test or an EKG. We can get on the spot to start working him up. Our patient's vitals on admission, his temperature was 37 degrees Celsius. His blood pressure was 152 over 96 with the map of 115. His heart rate was 104. His respiratory rate was 22. At room air, the patient was satting 91% and he improved to 97% with 3 liters nasal cannula. First physical exam, the patient appeared in mild distress with deep inspiration and with speech, but otherwise he was resting comfortably while he was sitting upright. It was difficult for me to appreciate any jugular venous distension. For his cardiac exam, he had normal S1, S2. He had no significant murmurs, rubs, or gallops. He had mild crackles at the lung bases, otherwise no wheezing or ronchi was appreciated, and he was using 3 liters nasal cannula. His abdomen was soft, non-tender, mildly distended. Regarding his extremities, he had 2 to 3 plus bilateral lower extremity edema those equal on both sides and up to the knees. For his neuro exam, he was moving all his extremities, and for his psychiatric exam, he was alert and oriented times 3. Now jumping into some of the labs that we have, regarding his CBC, he was notable for mild thrombocytopenia, two platelets of 151. Regarding his CMP, his creatinine was a little bit elevated to 1.25 with a baseline of 1 to 1.1. Jumping into our cardiac biomarkers, his troponin T was 0.01 on admission. Then four hours later, it was less than 0.01. His NT proBNP was 1,868, but there was no baseline available. His thyroid studies were unremarkable. His venous blood gas was also unremarkable with a pH of 7.42 and a PCO2 of 36. His COVID PCR was negative, and his urine drug screen was positive for amphetamines.
1: So, Emily, already there's a lot to think about here. From his vitals themselves, this gentleman is tachypnic, tachycardic, hypoxic, with lower extremity edema, requiring supplemental oxygen. This is already concerning, and he has evidence of organ injury with an elevated creatinine as well as an elevated antipro BMP, not to mention his urine drug screen being positive for amphetamine, which is expected based on his history. So all of the concerns that we had based on your detailed history are bolstered by the objective data that we have so far and make us really hone in to figure out what's going on here. Do you mind going through the chest x-ray and EKG and maybe we can think about where to go from there?
2: Sure. So while he's in the ED, we were able to get a chest x-ray and it was largely normal, notable only for an enlarged main pulmonary artery. There was no pulmonary edema, pleural effusion, or pneumothorax that was noted. Regarding his EKG, it showed that the patient was in sinus tachycardia. He had a right axis deviation, as well as right atrial enlargement with the P pulmonale. At this point, with the data we have thus far, we can probably narrow the differential diagnosis a little bit. So his acute left-sided heart failure and cardiac arrhythmia at this point becomes less likely, since the EKG shows that the patient was in sinus tachycardia. His chest x-ray also didn't show any overt signs of volume overload. So we can probably narrow differentials more to pulmonary embolism, given his tachycardia, his history of DVT. As well as pulmonary hypertension with symptoms of the volume overload and his history of methamphetamine use. In practice, sometimes we are inclined to get a well score to see if we should get a D dimer or a CTPA. But in this case, since we had a high clinical suspicion for PE, we went straight to the CTPA while the patient was still in the ED. Given the high suspicion for PE, CTPA was obtained. And while we were waiting for that to get done, we did start a patient on therapeutic heparin drip. The CTPA showed that there was no pulmonary emboli, but the main pulmonary artery was prominent concerning for mild pulmonary hypertension. His heart and mediastinal structures were within normal limits. There was reflux of contrast into the inferior vena cava and hepatic veins, suggested of increased right heart pressure, and there was also trace pericardial effusion. Otherwise, there was no pulmonary parenchymal abnormality and there was no airway abnormality. Since the CTPA results were negative for PE, the heparin drip was properly held. And given the concern for pulmonary hypertension with the enlarged pulmonary artery that was seen, a transthoracic echocardiogram was pursued.
3: Emily, that was a great presentation so far. And I love how when Charlie asked you earlier, what next steps do you need to do? And this is before the physical and lab and things like that. When you already were considering symptoms of heart failure, you didn't jump straight to the echo. This case beautifully highlights why we don't just do that. We want to understand the history and physical and get as much data as we can prior to getting the echo. Because that will tell us what we should expect on the echo. And then if we find something different than what we would expect on the echo, then we should rethink the entire case, right? So here's a great example where we've identified the patient's dyspnea to a cardiorespiratory component. And then we said, there's probably something going on with the heart and maybe the heart-lung interface. And then you've demonstrated why you put acute left-sided heart failure lower on the differential. Obviously, it hasn't been ruled out entirely. But you've basically pinpointed this into the right side of the heart and the lungs. So now when we're going to be hearing the trans echo, which is really the next step, we have certain expectations of what we would expect to see. And if we find something other than that, we'll definitely rethink this case very carefully. So Charlie, I know you just were strolling out of the echo lab. I presume you saw this echo. So what did you see and what were you thinking? Sure did. So based on what Emily has already nicely outlined,
0: not only the presence of a tall R-wave in V1 on the ECG, as well as the rightward axis. And most recently, the CT scan demonstrating reflux uh, of contrast, which is a sign potentially consistent with right ventricular dysfunction and or tricuspid regurgitation. Going into the transthoracic echo, there's already a suspicion that something is wrong with the right side of the heart. And so we go into this examination expecting to find something wrong with the right ventricle, either dilated, hypertrophied, some evidence of pulmonary hypertension. And if we don't find that, then we have to go back to the drawing board to ask ourselves why the patient has persistent dyspnea, hypoxemia, and tachycardia. But in fact, the transthoracic echocardiogram was completed, and it demonstrated essentially two key findings, which we'll expand upon later in the case. But first, I want to highlight that the left ventricular function appeared normal with maybe some concentric hypertrophy, a finding that often represents repeated exposure to high afterload, just like in patients who have chronic hypertension. But the second key finding is that the right ventricle and the right atrium both appeared severely dilated with evidence of RV systolic dysfunction. And this is something that we often see in patients who have long-standing pulmonary hypertension or a right-sided system that is exposed to high pressures because of the system that's not naturally designed to pump against high resistance or high pressures. And notably, this is often commented in Echo reports these days the presence of something called flattening of the interventricular septum during diastole and or systole. We take this to mean that there's evidence of volume overload causing that flattening in diastole and pressure overload in the right ventricle causing flattening in systole. It's a similar principle to the same kind of interventricular dependence we talk about when we reason out why physiologically cardiac tamponade can be so dangerous. Now, in highlighting some of the objective data on the transthoracic echocardiogram, There are different schools of thought on the sensitivity and specificity for specific numbers such as TAPSI or the RV S prime, something called a peak lateral tricuspid annular systolic velocity. They can be used as surrogates on TTE for how much the RV is moving and suffice it to say in this case, not very well. These numbers were low. And we're often instructed to use these numbers to corroborate our suspicions, but to not refute them. So in this case, the absence of RV movement by Doppler is supportive of our suspicion that there has been longstanding damage to the RV, causing it to dilate
1: and not move as well as it should. This is all really helpful so far. And really, at this point, we can make some conclusions, right? We have a 33-year-old man with a history of DVT that was inadequately treated and methamphetamine abuse who presents with subacute progressive dysneon exertion, and now is found to have the clinical syndrome of RV failure. We have evidence both from the anti-proBNP, the clinical syndrome with peripheral edema, and organ injury of elevated creatinine and AST for liver injury. And we also have an echo, a dilated RV, and we think about what are the causes of RV failure. we think about elevated afterload in terms of pulmonary hypertension, valvular disease, preload, myocardial we don't see any evidence of valvular disease in the echocardiograms. That's very helpful. And we don't really have anything to suggest primary RV myocardial problems, but they're certainly at play here at this point in the case, right? You could consider ARVC or other myocardial issue. But there are, in terms of Venn diagram, we have RV failure. And we also have a lot to suggest pulmonary vascular issues. This gentleman has hypoxia. He has a dilated PA on his CT. In terms of acuity and chronicity of this timeline, I'm looking at the labs now, I missed this earlier, but his hemoglobin is 19. In the absence of a myeloproliferative disorder, I would think that this suggests that his hypoxia is not as acute as one might imagine in the ED, that he has longstanding hypoxemia, probably referred to pulmonary vascular disease, causing elevated afterload and RV failure. So now the question is, one, why does he have RV failure? And why does he have likely elevated pulmonary pressures? But take me to the moment when you guys are evaluating this patient in the ED, you have the echo back. What were your next steps and what was going on in your mind?
2: Sure, we were fairly concerned about pulmonary hypertension, as you mentioned, but we don't really know why he has pulmonary hypertension. So we tried to obtain additional labs as well as additional diagnostics while we admitted the patient to us. Regarding his lab workup, we also sent for ANA level, which was negative. His HIV was also negative and his hepatitis panel was also negative. Some additional diagnostics that we were able to obtain We also got a BQ scan as well as a lower extremity duplex.
0: So exactly. The differential for why this individual has accrued RV failure over time remains broad. And on the echocardiogram, unfortunately, we did not have a sufficient tricuspid regurgitation jet on which to estimate peak RV systolic or PA pressures. Emily, what was the next thing that you would do to try and discern if there is, in fact, pulmonary hypertension? What is the gold standard for discerning where the pressure overload is coming from?
2: Yeah, based on the ECHO findings we saw, we actually consulted cardiology next to see if they can help us with further evaluation and possibly get a right heart cath next.
0: Great, and that's exactly what was done next. So based on the latest set of guidelines from the European Society of Cardiology and European Respiratory Society, the gold standard for figuring out if somebody has pulmonary hypertension is via right heart catheterization. And there's specific cutoffs for diagnosis, like the main PA pressure has to be at least 20 millimeters mercury. For pulmonary arterial hypertension, there has to be a pulmonary vascular resistance greater than two woods units within normal or low wedge pressure, etc. So the formal diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, as you might be suspecting here, is usually done in a two-step manner where patients first get a transthoracic echocardiogram to evaluate the right side of the heart and potentially estimate peak systolic pressures. But that's limited by your ability to get an adequate JET on drug husband regurgitation. But the second step is to do a confirmatory right heart catheterization if it's indicated. And in this case, it's absolutely the next thing to ask for. And in fact, the next thing that was done So we'll take you to the cardiac catheterization laboratory, where our patient is still tachycardic with a heart rate of about 100, 105. He's still hypoxemic, requiring a few liters of oxygen in nasal cannula, and his blood pressure is still hypertensive at about 150 over 90 millimeters mercury. So following some intravenous diuresis, we found that his mean RA pressure was about five or six millimeters mercury. Whereas his pulmonary artery pressures were significantly elevated at about 75 for systolics, 30s for diastolics, generating a mean PA pressure of about 50. And in the wedge position, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and approximation of our left atrial pressure is approximately three to five millimeters mercury. So at this point, we have evidence of marked pulmonary hypertension, which is not accompanied by significant elevations in the wedge pressure. But given his numbers, by thermodilution and Fick estimation, this generates a cardiac index for him of about two to two and a half liters per minute per square meter of body area. And the pulmonary vascular resistance, notably, comes out to about nine or ten Woods units, which is, again, markedly abnormal, as it should be less than two individuals with normal pulmonary vascular resistance. All right. So at this stage, Emily, we have these numbers and I know we didn't find any significant valvular abnormalities on the transthoracic echo. And although we haven't delved into the possibility of a primary myocardial issue, what are your thoughts on what this represents and what did we ask for next in terms of next
2: diagnostics? Sure. So based on the hemodynamic findings that you have had I described, the patient with a high mean pulmonary artery pressure as well as a low wedge pressure. We're concerned that the patient has isolated precapillary pulmonary hypertension. And again, he also has a high pulmonary vascular resistance so it's greater than three Woods units. So again, this would all be consistent with a precapillary picture. And based on these findings, a reactivity test was obtained.
0: Great. And as you had alluded to, this is something that we do when we uncover precapillary pulmonary hypertension and would not be something that we would have pursued had he had an elevated wedge pressure that we would have felt the need to discern this. The vasoreactivity study mentioned is a maneuver we frequently do to investigate if individuals who have pulmonary arterial hypertension, PAH, might be responsive to calcium channel blocker therapy. I will say in most experiences this happens less than 20% of the time, but we do it anyway because it determines if patients might get better on oral therapies alone. So in this young man's case, going through the vasoreactivity studies, At baseline, we knew that his mean PA pressures were about 50 with a normal or low, in fact, wedge pressure at about 3 to 5 millimeters mercury and a preserved cardiac index and an elevated pulmonary vascular resistance with high concentration of inhaled nitric oxide at 80 ppm, which actually far exceeds the recommended minimum or standard of diagnosis. His mean PA pressure did not change. It remained around 50 to 55. Similarly, his wedge pressure, cardiac index, and pulmonary vascular resistance calculated out were all about the same. So this is to say that there's no change in his hemodynamics from baseline to when he was administered nitric oxide as a vasodilator.
1: Right. In contrast to a positive test, which would be a drop in at least 10 points to below 40 without a change or a drop in the cardiac output. Exactly.
2: And I would just like to note that what I found interesting was responders to a vasoreactivity test is actually really rare. And I saw that in some studies, only about 5 to 10% of patients with pulmonary hypertension are dominant responders. And in most cases, if they're non-responsive to the calcium channel blockers, sometimes they will just transition to other medications for treatment.
1: Yeah. So, Emily and Charlie, at this point, really an extraordinary workup and evaluation, and you've really narrowed into the issue of elevated pulmonary pressures, and you've all but excluded group 2 pulmonary hypertension in terms of left heart or left sided valvular disease-mediated pulmonary hypertension. And I know on the CT scan, we didn't see any lung parenchymal pathology, but how did you figure out, again, to guide management, what is the cause of his pulmonary hypertension resulting in RV failure?
0: I think that's a great question. And Emily, as you had already touched upon earlier, there's a number of different things that can cause individuals to develop pulmonary arterial hypertension. And my question to you is, what were your next steps in terms of figuring out what was left on the table versus what is unlikely to have caused this individual to develop pulmonary hypertension over the
2: years? So based on the right heart cath result, we were concerned about precapillary pulmonary hypertension. Some additional labs and diagnostics that we obtained included an ANA level, HIV, and hepatitis panel, which were all negatives. Next, we wanted to get a BQ scan to evaluate for thromboembolic pulmonary embolism, given this patient's history of DVT and not getting full treatment with anticoagulation. And in some cases, BQ scans, when compared to CTPA, does have higher sensitivity for detecting CTEF. And I will let Charlie review some of our image findings from the VQ scan.
0: The ventilation perfusion scan or VQ scan itself is often done for individuals when etiology of pulmonary hypertension is unknown and there's a desire to evaluate for who group for or contribution of chronic thromboembolic disease. And as Emily had outlined, there's a significant pretest probability for this based on the individual's prior diagnosis of presumably provoked or maybe even unprovoked DVT. But I will say its use is limited in individuals who already have concurrent restrictive or obstructive lung pathology, or in whom the chest x-ray is abnormal, because in a lot of those cases, the imaging is not specific enough to significantly alter the pretest probability. But in this case, with our gentleman, there wasn't any definitive evidence of chronic thromboembolism on his VQ scan. So this is, in short, essentially a negative, or at the very least, a non-diagnostic study. As Emily had mentioned earlier, the diagnosis of pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension is cinched by the gold standard right heart catheterization. But all of these studies are necessary in order to eliminate the possibility of some of these rare etiologies contributing to the development of elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. It's fair as an internist and a cardiologist to assume, based on this gentleman's history, that methamphetamine-catecholamine-related RV failure as a result of that exposure is at the top of the differential. But we still owe it to this young gentleman to make sure that the other rare etiologies are not contributing, hence the workup as Emily had already mentioned.
1: Yeah, Charlie, those are great points. And you know, there are two issues going on right now. One is figuring out the cause of the pulmonary hypertension. And we've already ruled out some of them to help guide management for the specific etiology. But at the same time, we also have to manage the pulmonary hypertension and the elevated pressures themselves. Maybe we can go through the tools available to us.
2: Yeah. So just quickly talking about the treatment for pulmonary hypertension. There are four general categories of medications. First one being calcium channel blockers that we have already mentioned. When patients have a positive vasoreactivity test, this includes medications like nifedipine, diltiazem, and amlodipine. The second class of medications are endothelin receptor antagonists, which includes medications like mastotentin, which inhibits binding of endothelin, a vasoconstrictive peptide. The third class of medications is phosphodiesterate-5 inhibitors, as well as guanylate-likelyse stimulators like sildenafil. By inhibiting the phosphodiesterase 5 enzymes, it causes vasodilation through production of nitric oxide and CGMP. And our last class of drugs are prostacyclin analogs or prostacyclin receptor agonists, which are produced predominantly in the endothelial cells and induces potent vasodilation of vascular beds. So most of the time, these medications are started in combination therapy, and often patients follow with a pulmonary hypertension specialist for ongoing management.
0: And Emily, it is considered standard of care now for individuals who have pulmonary arterial hypertension to often consider combination therapy. Sometimes you'll see ambrisentan and tadalafil, for example, combined as initial therapy for these individuals who present in their index admission, haven't taken medications before. I do believe it's considered a class one indication to start multiple of these medications at the same time based on at least one trial that they did in the pulmonary world, ambition to look at if people did better based on combination therapy initiation? And the answer in short was yes. And so in differing levels of class of recommendation, we tend to start or recommend starting multiple agents as the patient can human tolerate them.
2: So far, we have a young gentleman with a history of DVT presenting with signs of dyspnea as well as lower extremity edema. We have a right hard cath obtained showing precapillary pulmonary hypertension with negative vasoreactivity tests. So we consulted our pulmonary hypertension specialist and the patient was started on sedonophil, 20 milligrams every eight hours, as well as bernolactone and Lasix for additional diuresis. After a few days in the hospital, the patient reports overall symptomatic improvement after aggressive diuresis and was successfully weaned to room air. His lower extremity edema improved significantly now with only residual trace lower extremity edema and was able to ambulate without any issue. Prior to discharge, the patient was counseled on all his medications that were started, including diuretics to treat his symptoms as well as medication for pulmonary hypertension. And he was instructed to follow up outpatient to obtain a sleep study as well as pulmonary function tests to continue to work up his diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension as well as stopping to use methamphetamines. Unfortunately, we saw that the patient represented to our hospital about eight months after he was discharged with dyspnea and lower extremity edema basically symptoms that were very similar to how we presented to us the first time. And these symptoms were concerning for exacerbation of his underlying pulmonary hypertension. Per the note that we saw, he was reportedly off all medications, including sildenafil and diuretics, but he has stopped using methamphetamines altogether based on that encounter as well. And it seems like he had some difficulty with insurance trying to follow up with his in-network pulmonary hypertension specialists. So at this point, the final diagnosis for our case is methamphetamine-associated pulmonary arterial hypertension with right heart failure.
3: Emily, now that we've identified that this patient's symptoms are from pulmonary hypertension and our working diagnosis is methamphetamine-induced pulmonary hypertension, can you tell us a little bit more about methamphetamine-induced pulmonary hypertension and see how that correlates with our patient?
2: Sure. So methamphetamine increases catecholamine activity with direct effects on cardiac and vascular tissue, which is thought to be the primary mechanism underlying the cardiotoxic effects that the drug has. Methamphetamine use is associated with vasoconstriction, pulmonary arterial hypertension, atherosclerosis, cardiac arrhythmias, as well as cardiomyopathy. And chronic use of methamphetamine has been associated with remodeling of cardiac tissue. There has been multiple retrospective cohort studies showing that patients with pulmonary hypertension were more likely to have a history of methamphetamine use. Additionally, meth-associated pulmonary hypertension was more commonly seen in patients who inhaled the drug through smoking, which was how our patient was using methamphetamine. There is also increasing prevalence of methamphetamine-associated cardiomyopathy Specifically, methamphetamine-associated heart failure presents with increased severity of heart failure symptoms, longer inpatient stays, as well as more hospital readmissions compared to non-methamphetamine-associated heart failure. And as seen in our case, diagnosing pulmonary hypertension is difficult as signs and symptoms are often nonspecific. The diagnosis is often delayed because the presenting features are frequently attributed to age, deconditioning, or any other coexisting medical condition. It is estimated that more than 20% of the patients have symptoms of pulmonary hypertension for longer than two years before it is recognized. And patients typically present with exertional dyspnea and fatigue, chest pain, fluid retention and weight gain, as well as syncope in more advanced cases. And because of these non-specific findings, it is really important to have a high clinical suspicion like we did in our case for pulmonary hypertension. So we can do the workup first with trans thoracic echocardiogram, followed by right hard cath, and hopefully start patients on appropriate treatment therapies early on.
0: And Emily, as you had highlighted, the physiology being that of catecholamine-related hypertension, tachycardia, and increased myocardial stress leads to the development of cardiomyopathy. I will say here in Los Angeles, unfortunately, we do see a large number of these cases, and it doesn't always present in terms of isolated pulmonary hypertension, which is to say we do see methamphetamine-related cardiomyopathy presenting as isolated left ventricular dysfunction isolated right ventricular dysfunction such as in this patient's case or even biventricular dysfunction in a very end-stage type presentation we don't exactly know why some individuals have a penchant to develop left versus right sided failure or vice versa
1: charlie and emily thank you so much for bringing us this important case and raising awareness about an important issue an issue that i think many of us are going to see more and more often methamphetamine use unfortunately is on the rise especially in hotbeds like the western united states and in my brief reading, I realized that not only is methamphetamine associated with pulmonary arterial hypertension, but the response to therapy and outcomes of PAH associated with methamphetamines is quite worse than PAH not associated with methamphetamine use. Probably a variety of reasons for that. But needless to say, the best treatment here certainly will be prevention and a high index of suspicion in users of methamphetamine. And a side issue that is also very important here is that on the one hand, there's recreational stimulant abuse. And then on the other hand, there is pharmacologic stimulant use for ADHD. The diagnosis of ADHD is at an incline in the United States. And the pharmacologic therapies, largely stimulants, are keeping up pace with a steep increase in prescription stimulants, especially in younger children and adolescents. And there's been really alarming data for cardiovascular and pulmonary vascular adverse effects of these medicines, and certainly behavioral therapies and safer therapies like omega-3 are advocated before resorting to stimulant use. But needless to say, we will be seeing more and more cardiovascular, pulmonary vascular impact of stimulants, be them recreational or prescription. So thank you again for teaching us about this case. Thank you to your patient for raising awareness about this issue. Phenomenal discussion. Thanks, guys. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much for having us. Strong work.
4: Well, my name is Jonathan Davis. I am an associate professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. And I work primarily at San Francisco General Hospital, where I serve as the director of the heart failure program for the city and county's public health safety net system, the San Francisco Health Network, that serves approximately one in eight San Franciscans are a little over 100,000 people who all get their primary care across San Francisco and their clinical care, specialty care physically at San Francisco General Hospital. But I want to thank you for the invitation to discuss this really interesting case that embodies a lot of issues, both medical and otherwise in this patient population. So first off, I think it was a really interesting case highlighting a, a thorough presentation, the pathophysiology workup initial treatment of a young man coming in with shortness of breath found a pulmonary hypertension from his methamphetamine use. And just, I want to say a couple of things specifically about that, but then take a step back and think about some of the broader issues that the stimulant use and how that impacts both this gentleman's presentation, but also how we take care of him. The team did a really nice job of keeping the broad differential diagnosis. When um, patients come in with methamphetamine use or other drug use issues, it's very easy to kind of pin all of their presentation on the drug use. And to be able to keep an open mind and do a broad differential diagnosis and think about other things that could be at play here is incredibly important. And also that once you narrow in the diagnosis, in this case, to pulmonary hypertension, that not just it's from methamphetamine. And the team does a really nice job thinking about other things from autoimmune, chronic thrombobolic disease, and, and otherwise. But the key really is, you know, what happens after the patient leaves the hospital? You know, the team does a thorough workup, starts treatment with sildenafil, bernolactone, and furosemide, but then the patient discharges. And that isn't seen or heard of, again for another eight months when he comes back with the same presentation, fortunately off methamphetamine, but on any medications, no clinic follow-up. And the key is to think, how do we address these other issues before the patient leaves the hospital? Because what happens when they leave is the single most important thing. And, and as we'll see with taking care of um, individuals, both medical and drug use issues, is that it's the everything else, that giving them a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, prescribing the right things, or if it's heart failure, is driving you know, guideline-directed medical therapy, that's the easy part. It's what happens when they leave the hospital. And methamphetamine use is really on the rise across the country. In California, as an example, from 2008 to 2018, the methamphetamine-associated admissions overall increase from just over 1% to 8%, which is a 600% increase in that 10-year span. At our safety net hospital here at San Francisco General, there is an odd ratio of 3.6 that methamphetamine used being an independent predictor of heart failure readmission. And, and this is a problem and it's rising nationally. And kind of How do we think about the different things at play here? Because it is a tremendous burden to the healthcare system. Recent studies have shown that, that this cost and in annual inflation adjusted hospitalizations for methamphetamine associated diseases was almost 900% from this 2008-2018 time span from $41 million to $390 million. It's a problem. And folks with co-occurring stimulus disorder and heart disease face a lot of barriers. And I think it's really important to step beyond just the pulmonary hypertension and the cardiomyopathy and thinking about those barriers because there's, there's several issues at play. The thing that comes to mind, among others, and I'll talk about a few things briefly, is that there's bi-directional stigma. There's stigma from providers to patients. Oh, so and so here again with their, you know, their stimulant use and their heart failure. They're probably hypertension. They're not taking the medications and a lot of biases that exist on the part of the providers. Further, that there's a uh, directions, the other direction, patients coming in feeling, Oh, they're not going to take me seriously. They don't want to treat me. They're just going to think I'm just a drug user and they're going to blow me off. And this this really puts us um, an estrangement in the care lines between patient and provider. And and these folks are sick. The rates of rates of acute care utilization, urgent care, emergency department center are significantly higher than than other individuals who don't use drugs. While the rates of outpatient engagement are low, and we don't exactly know exactly how this drug causes different diseases, as was mentioned in the presentation. We don't know is it's a dose response, how much use is enough to cause pulmonary or cardiac toxicities. How does a rate of um, of drug use, the method of drug use, whether injected or, or inhaled, predisposed to different things. Also, this population has very high issues of co occurring mental health and other substance use issues. They're often under-resourced economically with poor social support, um, housing, food insecurity issues, all intact outpatient care, And these social turbines help disproportionately affect this population and drive an even higher rate of acute care utilization, heart failure, and pulmonary hypertension presentations, morbidity, and mortality. And so we really have to take a broader look at how we think about these folks from a multidisciplinary perspective. We're very fortunate. Marlene Martin started an inpatient addiction care team. as now a multidisciplinary team at our hospital with nurse practitioners, medical MDs that are board certified internal medicine, case management, social work that can meet patients in the hospital to begin to discuss their stimulant issues. But you have to have a way to think about what's going to happen when the patient leaves and trying to plug patients in with resources before they go home. Make sure they have that primary care appointment. It's on paper. There's a lot of these folks don't have telephones, so don't don't rely on the post discharge follow up phone call to connect them. Make sure this is down before them. Schedule in the clinic's phone number if they do have a phone. Program it in the patient's telephone before they go. Think about how they're getting their medications. So they need medisets or bubble packs prepared on discharge? They need 30-day supply and a 90-day supply because their meds are at risk of being lost or stolen. And if you give them a 90-day supply, which again, in the general population can re- um, improve adherence, if they're more at risk of having their medication stolen or misplaced, then if you give them a 90-day supply, it, it makes an even longer time between availability for the medication to be resilled. So thinking about all these issues that the patient's facing, before they leave the hospital, and that has to be just as important as making the medical diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, heart failure, what have you, is thinking about the social determinants of health, trying to plug them into resources, and to be mindful of this as we set up their discharge planning in order to really thoroughly and thoughtfully engage this patient population and get them the care that they need the most. But again, thank you so much for having me. Comment on this, and take care. Beep. Beep.